Well, if you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and flip to Mark chapter five. That's where we're gonna be today. So last week, we looked at one of Jesus's parables in Mark four. And after Jesus tells some parables in Mark four, what happens is he and his disciples get in a boat and they start to row across the Sea of Galilee. And if you're familiar with this passage, you, you know how what happens is as they, are rolling, as they are rowing across the sea, they have a big storm that comes. And the disciples are terrified, they're afraid, they're freaking out. And Jesus, when this is happening, Jesus is actually asleep in the boat because he's exhausted. He's been healing people. He's been teaching and preaching. And what the disciples do is they wake Jesus up. Jesus calms the storm. And after he does that, the disciples are just like, can you believe what's happening? It's like, this guy's speaking and the storms are obeying him. It's like, who is this guy? But the big idea of that story is that Jesus has authority over storms or Jesus has authority over nature. What happens is that after Jesus calms the storm, they get over to the other side of the sea and that's where Mark 5 starts. And guess who's there as a one-man welcoming committee to welcome Jesus? It's a man who's possessed by demons. And so Jesus is like, okay, well, this is great. Well, this guy, he's, they've been trying to keep this guy restrained, but he's been breaking shackles. He's been breaking chains. He's been causing all sorts of problems. And what Jesus does is he heals this guy and he basically becomes an evangelist. And he just goes around town telling people all about what Jesus has done for him. And so what we see in this story is, is in the same way that Jesus has authority over storms, Jesus also has authority over demons. Well, what we're gonna see today as we pick up in, in verse 21 of Mark 5 is that not only does Jesus have authority over the storms and over demons, he also has authority over death and disease. And what we're gonna see is Jesus is gonna interact with two people. Both of these people feel hopeless. Both of these people have nowhere else to go. Both of them are desperate. Both of them are gonna come to Jesus for healing. And what we're gonna see here is that Jesus responds to both of their needs and he meets, he meets them right where they are. And I think that today's passage is gonna be very timely for some of you because in a room this size, I know that some of you feel hopeless. You've been praying the same prayer for years and you feel like God's not answering it how you want them to. Some of you feel hopeless because you're still single. You're saying, I'm doing all the right things. I'm in community, but where's the godly man? Where's the godly woman? Some of you feel hopeless because you, you can't get pregnant or, or stay pregnant. Some of you might feel hopeless because you just still feel a lot of guilt and shame over something that you did in your past or something that was done to you. And, and what we're gonna see in this story is that regardless of how hopeless you feel, Jesus sees you, he's aware of your needs, and you have reason to look to the future with hope. And so let's look here at verse 21, what Jesus says. Now, again, what we're gonna see here is that there are two situations that tend to be the most hopeless for people. One is when your kid is hurting or when someone you're close to is hurting. And then the second is if you have something in your life that is chronic, a chronic struggle, a chronic addiction. And Jesus is gonna address both of those. And so let's look, at, look together. Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. So after Jesus heals the man possessed by demons, he gets in the boat and they go back to the other side and guess who's there to welcome him? Of course, it's a big crowd because by this point, Jesus is basically a celebrity and people are following Jesus around sort of like they follow around Tiger Woods on a Sunday at the masters if he's winning. It's like lots of people. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. 
And so we see three things here. First, we see that we are given Jairus' name. So commentators or scholars say that the fact that we are given Jairus' name here lets us know that he probably was an influential leader in the early church. And the reason why we know that is because almost everybody who receives a healing from Jesus in the scriptures, we don't have their name, but we know Jairus' name. And we're told that he is a religious leader, which means he's likely wealthy. He is well-respected. He is well-known. He is just in a position of authority in the city that he's at. And so we're told his name, he's a religious leader. And then we're told that Jairus falls down at Jesus' feet. Now, when is the last time that you saw a grown man fall down at someone's feet? You probably haven't seen it because it would be very atypical for that to happen today, but it would be even more strange for that to happen then because for someone to fall down at someone's feet back then, it would have been considered shameful, especially for someone who was a religious leader like Jairus is. This would be the equivalent of seeing Pope Francis fall down at someone's feet begging for something. It would just be a bizarre sight, but that's what's happened because Jairus is is desperate. And so let's, let's keep going. Verse 23, and Jairus implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And so we find out later in this text that Jairus's daughter is 12 years old. And we actually see in the book of Luke that this is Jairus's only daughter. Now, back at that time, if you only had one child, that was pretty abnormal. And so we don't know if they struggled to get pregnant again or or what happened. But what we do know is that Jairus only has one daughter. She's on her deathbed and he's feeling desperate. And what Jairus does in this moment gives us a picture of how we should respond to our kids when they're in need because Jairus goes to the feet of Jesus to advocate for his daughter. And what we're seeing here is, is a picture of a dad who is unashamed to seek Jesus. We need more dads like this in our church. We need more dads like this in our city. Now, I wanna acknowledge, we have some great dads in this church. Some of you are doing a great job being a dad. You are taking initiative. You are owning the spiritual development of your family and your family is benefiting from it as a result. But, but what is the temptation for many dads? It's these three things, to abdicate their responsibility, to abuse it, or to abandon it. That's what most dads want to do. They want to abdicate the responsibility. They give it to the wife or they give it to the grandkids or they give it to our kids ministry. Hey, you teach them the Bible. Some will abuse it. They're domineering, they're controlling, they're overly harsh. And then some dads will just abandon the responsibility. They'll just leave. And what we see in this passage is that Jairus doesn't do any of those things. Jairus doesn't send his wife and say, hey baby, would you go get Jesus for me? I'll stay here. Jairus was wealthy, so he probably had servants at the time, but he doesn't say, hey, I'm gonna go send a servant to go get Jesus. No, what he does is he goes to Jesus himself to advocate for his daughter. And so my question to dads is this, are you doing this? Are you going to bat for your kids? And you might hear them say, well, I want to, I would love to do this, but where do I even start? Well, there's two, two things that I think are fairly simple. The first thing you can do is prayer. It's seeking Jesus for your kids in prayer. Two years ago, when my wife Liv and I were pregnant with our daughter, Emma, we went over to Pastor Kyle's house and got dinner with, his, with Kyle and his wife, Margie. And when we were there, we told him we were pregnant. And that night, Kyle prayed for three things that I still remember. He prayed for the salvation, the spouse, and the service of our baby. Now, of course, if you know Pastor Kyle, you know he loves alliteration. So it all, they all start with S. 
But, but those are three great places to start. And so if you don't know where to start when praying for your kids, pray for those two things. Maybe you could pray for their salvation. You could pray that they would never know what it's like to not love Jesus and love the church. Maybe your, your child is a Christian. Well, what you could do for them is you could say, hey, Lord, would you use my child to be a big part of the salvation of someone else's kids? And so you can pray for salvation. You can also pray for their spouse. You can pray that your kids would, would find a godly man or woman to partner with for kingdom labor. When I was in middle school, I could remember, for some reason, my mom just randomly told me this one day. She was like, yeah, did you know that I sometimes pray for your future wife? And at this point, I was, I was, I was like 12. I was like, what? I was like, last week, you just drove my girlfriend and I to the movie theater and sat with us the entire movie. It's like, but you're praying for my spouse? But, and, and now, you know, in hindsight, I look back. Every time I look at Olivia, I'm, I'm, I'm like, thanks, mom. <laughs> I appreciate the prayers. And so you can pray for your child's spouse. And what you could also pray is, is if your child doesn't end up finding a spouse, you could pray that they would be able to be immersed in a healthy Christian community to walk alongside them and care for them. And so salvation, spouse, and then service. You can pray that your child would be able to serve the Lord in their youth. You can pray that they would find a career that glorifies God and it's also something that they're good at, that they're passionate about, and that there's a need for. And so the first thing you can do is you can seek Jesus on behalf of your kids in prayer. The second thing you can do to, to care for your kids or to go to bat for your kids is prioritize their spiritual development. Take ownership of their spiritual development. And so dads, are you taking ownership of your children's spiritual development? Or are you delegating it to your wife because you feel like she's more spiritual or because she's better at it? You see, there's a few ways for us to take ownership. The first way to take ownership of your kids or your family's spiritual development is to really take your own spiritual development seriously. And so this starts with leading yourself well. This starts with reading your Bible. And this starts by repenting of your sin. This starts by you making community a priority in your life. And so it starts with you, but it doesn't end with you. Because the second thing you can do is you can connect your kids to godly men and women. Well, why? Well, it's because your kids are not gonna come to you for everything forever. I was talking with Justin, our student director, about this this week. And he shared with me that every year we do a survey of our students, our students. And one of the questions is this, how often do you go to your parents with questions or concerns? And Justin told me that 75% of seventh graders go to their parents for everything. By the time they get to ninth grade, 20% go to their parents for everything. By the time they're seniors, only 6% go to their parents for everything. And, and what's, the, what's the big point of this? Is that you need your kids to be surrounded by adults that not only they trust, but that you trust so that they can go somewhere and get some godly counsel about direction and, and what do I do with all these emotions? I'm in high school, I don't know what to do. They might not come to you, but what you can do is you can put people around them that you trust, that they trust, that they can go to. And so you can connect them to other believers. And then the third thing is, in order to prioritize your family's spiritual development, you are going to have to say no to certain things. You're gonna have to learn to say no. And so what you might have to do is you might have to say no if your teenage daughter wants to be on another travel soccer team that's gonna allow you to miss church every Sunday for the next three months again. And it's not a popular idea, but, but sometimes you have to say no to good things in order to prioritize things that are most important. 
And so moms, dads, ask yourself this. What does it look like for me to seek Jesus myself and for my kids? Now let's pick back up in verse 24. And as Jesus went with Jairus, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so here we have a woman who, has, who doesn't, is not given a name and it says that she has had menstrual bleeding for the last 12 years. And so what that means is that she has been sick for 12 years. For the last 12 years, she has probably been in pain. But, but not only that, it's, it says that she has been going to multiple different doctors who didn't make anything better. They actually made things worse. And so here's, here's what this means. You know, she was going to doctors. They were giving her all kinds of weird superstitious remedies that obviously didn't work. They were giving her these weird potions to try to make her better, but nothing worked. And after trying all these different potions and all these different superstitions, she was out of money, nothing worked, and then she was embarrassed. This would be the equivalent of going to the doctor now with 12 years of bleeding and being given an essential oil. It's like, this is not gonna help, obviously. It's like, here, take some ginger. It's like, not gonna help my bleeding. But that's the position this woman is in. And so if you were sick today for 12 years, it would be bad. You would not like it. But it would have been even worse for her because not only has she been sick for 12 years, she's been unclean for 12 years. So not only has she been physically suffering, she's been suffering socially. Now, you can go look at Leviticus chapter 15 with your community group this week and read about the ceremonial laws for cleanliness. But let me just boil them down and just let you know what it meant. No one has touched her for 12 years. No one's held her hand in 12 years. She hasn't been to church in 12 years, hasn't been to a, in a large crowd in 12 years. She hasn't sat down for dinner with anybody in 12 years, hasn't been hugged in 12 years. She's been social distancing for 12 years. Now, some of you, I can remember, some of you couldn't even social distance for two weeks to slow the spread, much less 12 years. But, but this is the situation that this woman is in. She has been away from community for, for so long. Now, the woman is very similar to Jairus in that she's hopeless. She comes to Jesus for healing. She has nowhere else to go. But what's interesting here is there are so many differences between this woman and Jairus. So for example, everyone knows Jairus' name. No one knows her name. Jairus is a religious leader. She's not even able to go to church. Jairus is respected. She's rejected. Jairus is honored. She's ashamed. Jairus has a family that he loves. We're gonna see he has a wife. He's coming on behalf of his daughter. This woman almost definitely doesn't have a daughter, but doesn't have a husband. And what we're gonna see here is that despite their differences, Jesus is gonna step in and he's gonna meet the needs of both of them. So let's see what happens in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, what we see here is a picture of faith. A simple definition of faith is this. Faith is reaching out to Jesus. That's what this woman's doing. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, 
Who touched my garments? What's interesting here is it almost seems like Jesus is not in control of who he heals. I mean, did you catch that? It's like, you look at this and he's like, is Jesus not in control of who he heals? Well, of course he's in control. What Mark is trying to do here is he's trying to illustrate to us that Jesus responds to faith so predictably and reliably that it's basically automatic. That's what he's trying to illustrate. And then what's also interesting is that Jesus asks who touches them. Now, some people will say, well, since even though Jesus was truly man and truly God, since he was limited by his human nature, that must mean that he didn't know who touched him. And that's an okay viewpoint. But most people think that Jesus knew exactly who touched him. And that makes you ask the question, well, why? Why did he say who touched me? Let's say that you tell your kids, let's say you have two or three kids, and after dinner you say, none of you can have candy after dinner. But after dinner, you look in the floor and you see a wrapper for a blue Jolly Rancher on the ground. And so you line your kids up and you look at them and the three-year-old has a blue tongue. (laughs) Now in that moment, when you look at them and say, all right guys, which one of you ate the blue Jolly Rancher? Are are you trying to figure out who did it? No, you're not trying to figure out who who did it because you know exactly who did. What you're trying to do is you are trying to get them to go public with what they have done which is exactly what Jesus is doing with this woman. He wants her to go public with her faith. And in the same way, some of you need to go public with your faith. Some of you have coworkers and friends and family who still have no idea that you're a Christian. Now they might be able to say, well, I think he's a little bit spiritual. I think that she goes to church some, but that's really all they need to know. And so what you need to do is you need to go, go public with your faith. Now, what that does not mean is I'm not saying get on Facebook and share those memes that say, Jesus says, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before heaven. Share if you agree. That's not what I'm saying. There are some of you in here. I'm I'm Facebook friends with you. But, But what I am saying is when someone asks you, hey, what did you do this weekend? Maybe instead of just saying, yeah, we just took it easy and had a good time and had a good time. What you can say is, hey, well, we, we went to church on Sunday and here's one big takeaway from it. And so we need to be a people who go public with our faith. Now, one of the things that we know about this is that the longer you wait to go public, the harder it is. And so that's an incentive. You should try to share your faith early, highly relational, explicitly Christian. For some of you, the way you can go public is to get baptized. You know that you need to be baptized. You, haven't, you have never made your own public declaration of faith in Christ through water baptism, and you know that you need to do it. And the way that you know you need to do it is every time someone talks about it or mentions it, or even me right now, you're, you tense up a little bit on the inside because you know that you have not gone public with your faith in this way. And so what does it look like for you to go public with your faith? Let's keep going. Verse 31. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So what the woman wanted is she wanted to just get healed and then get out of there. But that's not what's happening here because now she's at the feet of Jesus. She's terrified. She's not even supposed to be in the crowd because she's unclean. And she's wondering if Jesus is about to scold her right here, but but look and see what, what happens. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So what's interesting here is this is the only woman in all the scriptures that Jesus refers to as daughter. 
And it actually would have been a little bit of a strange word for him to use for a couple of reasons. Number one, daughter was a very intimate word to use. You didn't normally call someone that you had never met daughter. And then the second reason is that Jesus was in his early 30s when this happened. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years. And so it's likely that she's, in her, she's older than Jesus and he's still calling her daughter. I'm almost 30 now. This would be like me saying to a 35-year-old woman, hey, hey, daughter. It's like, this is strange. But, but this, this will make this make a little bit more sense. Where's her dad? She doesn't have a gyrus. She had to come to Jesus herself. She's been spending her own money to try to get better. No one came to Jesus on behalf of her. Her dad is not around. And some of you didn't have a dad or much of a dad. Some of you, your dad was never around. He was absent either physically or emotionally. He didn't come to your dance recitals or your graduation or your sporting events. Some of you might have lost your dad, whether it be to normal aging or to something tragic that happened when you were younger. And what Jesus is doing here is we see the compassion of Jesus in that he's stepping in. He says, does no one want to protect you? I'll do it. Does no one love you? Does no one want to embrace you? I'll embrace you. I'm the father to the fatherless. And so Jesus calls her daughter. And then the second thing he says, he says, your faith has made you well which is a picture of our salvation. What's interesting is that when something dirty touches something that is clean, it usually makes the clean thing dirty. Now, if you're sick and contagious, like, are you gonna try to go find a group of people that are not sick with the hopes that their lack of being sick will make you well? It's like, no, it's like, that's not, that's not what's gonna happen. But what we see with the woman is that though she was dirty, her faith in Jesus led to her becoming clean. Now, we have to acknowledge that faith in Jesus does not mean that you will automatically receive physical healing always. But in this case, her faith was the instrument by which she was healed. And in this scene, we see a just central belief of Christianity. And that's this, that when you come to Jesus with your sin, when you come to Jesus with your mess or with your past or with your guilt, Jesus does not say, clean yourself up and then come to me. He does not say, break your addiction that you've been struggling with and then come. He doesn't say, read your Bible from cover to cover. And then after you've read your entire Bible, then you can come to me. He doesn't say, stop feeling guilty and overwhelmed and anxious and then come to me. He he doesn't say, clean yourself up and come. He says, come and then I'll clean you up, which is the center of the gospel. Jesus does not say, clean yourself up and come. He says, come and I'll clean you up. Now let's see what happens next in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Jairus' house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, did any of you forget about Jairus? Remember Jairus? He, He had just come to Jesus with an emergency. His daughter was on her deathbed and Jesus said, yes, I'll come with you. And then what happens is Jesus and Jairus are walking to Jairus' house and what Jesus does is he stops to heal a woman with a chronic illness. And then after he heals her, he has a conversation with her. Can you imagine being in Jairus' position and watching this happen and then getting word that your daughter has just died? I worked for over three years as a PA in gastroenterology. 
And one of the things that I did often was I would work in the hospital and I would see consults. And I would see consults that ranged from emergency to totally not an emergency. And so let's say that I was in the hospital working and I got a consult for a 75-year-old male with active GI bleeding and he's a Jehovah's Witness, which means he can't receive blood products. Some of you medical people know what I'm talking about. Now, emergency or not emergency? Pop quiz. Emergency, yes, that's right. Okay, now let's say I go to see this guy. I'm on my way to go see him in the emergency department and I get a text for another consult. It's a 40-year-old male. His chief complaint is this, nausea. Now, pop quiz number two, is nausea an emergency? No, it's not. Contrary to popular belief, even though it's bad, nausea is not an emergency. Now, what would you think of me if in that moment, instead of going to see the guy who was actively bleeding, I stopped and went to go see this guy who's had nausea for 12 years? You would be like, what? It's like, this is totally reckless. This is not only reckless, it's irresponsible. I could maybe get sued for this. And, and this is exactly what Jesus has done. He has, instead of going to the person with the acute problem, he has stopped for the chronic problem. And now we hear that Jairus' daughter is dead. And so you can imagine being Jairus in this situation. He would be furious. And, and what they tell him, they say, hey, don't bother Jesus any further. Your daughter's dead, give up. Now look, look and see what happens in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And so Jesus says to Jairus, don't fear, keep having faith. Commentators say that what Jesus is saying here is literally keep believing. Or as Journey would say, don't stop believing. That's what he's saying to Jairus. Now, when, when God does not answer your prayers on your timeline, what are you tempted to do? You're tempted to stop believing. If, if God doesn't answer your prayers, you're tempted to be like, well, God, you haven't answered me yet. I'm always gonna have these, these desires. I'm always gonna have these attractions. I'm just gonna give up and give in. Or you might say, I've been praying for my, my relationship with my son. It's still not any better. I'm gonna be done with them. I'm gonna give up and give in. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, no, no, no. Don't do that. You need to keep believing, keep trusting. And what we're gonna see is that delay with Jesus is not necessarily denial with Jesus. And one more thing to notice here is that Jesus only let three of his disciples go with him into this girl's room. And you might ask, why is that? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's because Jesus wanted them to observe, to learn. He wanted them to watch him care for people so that they could do it as well. And the principle here is that so much of the Christian life is not only taught, but also caught. If you're a Christian, you need people in your life that can teach you and things that can, you can catch things from. It's why our definition of discipleship here is open Bible, which tends to be more about what is taught, and open life, which is what's caught. When I was at UNC Chapel Hill, the man who mentored me for, or discipled me for about five years, his name was Mike Camper, one of the godliest men I've ever known. And I look back on my time with Mike and he taught me all sorts of things and I'm grateful for that. But what is most in my mind when I think about him are the things that I caught just by observing him. Just by watching how he interacted with his wife, by watching how he prayed, watching how he led a staff team, watching how he resolved conflict, 
And so we need men and women in our lives that we can catch things from. Men and women who will model life for us. All right, let's keep going. Verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So I want you to picture this. There are six adults in this room and there's one little girl who's just died. Back when I was in PA school, I was in the room when the doctors told a family that their teenager was not gonna make it after a tragic accident. And what I saw in that mother in that moment is something that I will never forget for the rest of my life. The amount of grief, the amount of despair. I mean, it, I, was, I was upset for weeks afterwards just watching it. But that's what Jesus is walking into here. So look at this, verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he, Jesus, said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And so what we see here is that Jesus sits down next to the bed of this little girl. He, he grabs her by the hand and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Commentators say that what he's actually saying here is more of a pet name. And so it would sort of be like Jesus saying, hey, hey, sweetie, go ahead and get up. What he's not doing, he's not running in like a drill sergeant being like, get up right now. No, 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 he, he walks in, he's compassionate, he's kind. And he tells this girl, hey, sweetie, go ahead and get on up. He gives us a picture of the compassion of Jesus. There are so many things in this story that we can learn from, but I, but I think that there are three main things that we learn about the life of Jesus in this passage. The first is that Jesus is interruptible and aware. He's interruptible and aware. Jesus had a lot of things to do. He was a pretty busy guy. He had a lot of people who had needs. He was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing. But what we see here is that despite that, he was able to stop to meet the need of just one person. He was interruptible. And when you think about your life, when you think about the last month of your life, would you say that you have been someone who is interruptible? Because some of you, what you do is you just fill your schedules full of stuff. And being busy is not necessarily a bad thing. In some ways, being busy, busy is good because, you know, they say a bored man is a dangerous man. I agree. But there's a difference between being busy and being so busy that you are not interruptible enough to meet the needs of the people around you. And so some of you, what you need to do is you just need to stop saying yes so much. You just overcommit. And again, the problem with saying yes is that you're not able to meet the needs of those around you. And so Jesus is interruptible, but he's also aware Jesus was surrounded by thousands of people, but what we see here is that he was able to stop and he was aware of the needs of just one person, one person who was seemingly nameless. In a room this size, I'm sure that some of you look around and you wonder, well, there are a lot of people in this room. There are even more people in the world. Is God really aware of my needs? Does God really see me? Well, this passage, it shows you clearly that he does. Because we see that since Jesus is, or since God is omniscient, which means all-knowing, he's aware of your needs. 
And since Jesus is omnipotent, which means all powerful, he's able to do something about it. And so because he is omniscient, he is able to, he knows where you are, he knows what you need. And so we see that Jesus is interruptible and aware. And when it comes to being aware, not only is Jesus aware of you, but a question you can ask yourself is, hey, am I aware of the needs of others? Am I aware of the needs of the people around me? And so the first thing we see, he's interruptible and aware. The second thing we see is that people come to Jesus in times of trouble and transition. A couple weeks ago, I was with our college student leaders and I asked them, I said, how many of you came to Christ in a season of trouble, transition, or both? And almost all of them raised their hands. The reason why college is such a great time for so many people spiritually is because everyone's in a season of transition It's a new place, new friends, new people. And it tends to be a time of trouble. College has a way of bringing about trouble for college students. And if I were to take a poll of you guys, I'm sure that it would be pretty similar. What what happened is that you came to Jesus in a time of trouble or transition. You got sick or somebody that you loved got sick. You were looking for meaning or purpose. You were feeling overwhelmed. You were feeling guilty. And you feeling... That way, you being in a season of trouble is what led to you becoming a Christian. And so we see that people come to Jesus in times of trouble and transition. And then the last thing we see, and this is the most important, is that Jesus overcomes both sin and death. Jesus overcomes sin and death. Because you and I, we are, we are just like this woman. Without Jesus, we are, we're hopeless. Without Jesus, we are unable to get any better. We've tried, all these sort of, we've tried all sorts of things. We're not able to get better. But unlike the woman, you and I are unclean before a holy God because of our sin. You see, this woman, she didn't have anything to do with her bleeding, I'm sure. But you and I, we have very much to do with our sin before a holy God. And so we are just like the woman. And in the same way, we are also just like Jairus' daughter. Without Jesus, dead. Without Jesus, hopeless because we certainly can't raise ourselves from the dead. And what we see in this story is a picture of how Jesus can overcome the two things that you and I cannot overcome overcome no matter how hard we try, which is sin and death. Do you ever wonder why is Jesus the only way to salvation? Why is Jesus the only way to God? Well, it's because he's the only one who's ever overcome sin and death. When I was in college, my, the, my pastor at the time gave an illustration to illustrate this. And he said, he said, let's say that you are out by the pool and you can't swim. But for some reason you, you slip and you fall in the deep end and you start to drown. Now let's say that your best friend's there with you, but for whatever reason, they can't swim either. But they're feeling heroic. And so they jump in there after you to try to save you. Well, what's gonna happen in that moment? you're both gonna drown. 30 minutes later, somebody's gonna have, somebody's gonna walk by and find you at the bottom of the pool because your friend had the same problem that you had in that they couldn't swim. And the point of all this is that in order to be the savior, you can't have the same problem as the person who needs to be saved. And so why can't Buddha save you? It's because he's a sinner and he's dead. Why can't Muhammad and his teaching save you? He was a sinner, he's dead. Why can't your CrossFit coach or your doctor or your spouse save you? It's because they're sinners and they are going to die. 
But what we see in this passage is that Jesus Christ is able to overcome sin. We're, we're gonna see in the book of Mark, Jesus overcomes sin by living a perfect life. And then he dies the death that you and I deserve on the cross in our place. Jesus Christ bled like the woman. And then after he bore our sin in our place, he rose from the dead, proving that he had overcome death. And so if, if you are here and you are a Christian, my question to you is this, who are you close to who is hopeless? Maybe it's the person that you wrote down on a card last week, if you were here. Are you aware of the needs of the people around you? Is there somebody that you're close to right now who's in a season of trouble or transition? Can you reach out to them this week? And if you're not a Christian, what I would say to you is that unfortunately you are in the same position as this woman before she meets Jesus. Unable to clean yourself up. You've tried all sorts of things. You've tried to be a better person, hasn't worked. You've tried the self-help stuff, hasn't worked. You've tried to get better, but it's just made things worse and you're tired. Well, what we see in this passage is that the woman at the feet of Jesus received healing. Jairus at the feet of Jesus led to his daughter being healed. Forgiveness, acceptance, adoption by God is given to those who repent and have faith. And like we see in this passage, faith is just reaching out to Jesus. Faith is saying, God, I am not in a position to be Lord of my life. I need you to do it for me because I'm doing a bad job. But what we know is that is that takes humility. It took humility for Jairus to follow Jesus' feet and it will take humility for you to do the same. But what we see in this passage is that being at the feet of Jesus Christ is a pretty good place to be. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for the truth about you that we see in this passage, that you are a God who is loving, you are compassionate, you are for us. Father, I thank you that you do not tell us to clean ourselves up and then come to you, but just that we can come and you'll clean us up. Lord, I wanna pray for those in this room right now who are hopeless, who have difficult relationships they've been praying for, who are in seasons of life that they don't wanna be in, who are struggling with chronic illnesses, chronic addictions, would you give them a sense of your presence? Would you give them faith to continue to reach out to you? Father, we thank you that you are a God who is for us, not against us. You are compassionate, you are kind, you are loving towards us. In Jesus' name I pray.